Good evening. I'm Ben Premer, acting associate university librarian for Rare Books and Special Collections. We welcome you today um, on this first day of the Celebrating Jewish American Writers Conference uh, that is principally sponsored by the program in Jewish Studies, but also by the Princeton University Library, the Friends of the Princeton University Library, and a whole host of other people that you'll see in the program. I've been asked to announce, first of all, that everything after tonight takes place in the Frist Campus Center. Uh, if you don't know where the Frist Campus Center is, if you went that way and kept walking, you'd run into it, more or less. Uh, you can't miss it, and uh, it's, it's down the hill. And you'll find it, and if you can't find it, just ask a student, because they all know where it is. Um, tomorrow, uh, the important events are beginning at 9 a.m. Michael Wood is going to be awake. Uh, and doing fictions of identity. Barbara Mann will be chairing a session on Yiddish America at 11 o'clock. Then there'll be a break for lunch. Then at 2 o'clock, like today, there'll be authors reading from their work. And those authors are Max Apple, Rebecca Goldstein, uh, Alan Eisler, Alicia Ostreicher, and Jonathan Wilson. And then a keynote address by E.L. Doctorow at 4.30 tomorrow. And then at 8.30, uh, there'll be an illustrated lecture by Ben Ketcher, uh, which you'll want to come to because he's a remarkable artist, uh, and his address is entitled Half-Tone Printing in the Yiddish Press and, and, press and Other Objects of Idol Worship. Um, we'll be selling tonight, tomorrow, and Tuesday the double issue, special double issue of the Princeton University Library Chronicle, and the two-volume catalog to the Leonard Milberg Collection of Jewish American Writers. And those will be available over here to my right, your left tonight, but also at the conference. So at this point, Emily, it's all yours, Emily Mann. Good evening, everyone. It is an enormous pleasure for me to introduce to you my great friend and colleague, Wendy Wasserstein. I don't think I need to enumerate for you all of her stunning credits, but I will refresh your memories just a tad. In 1989, Wendy won the Pulitzer Prize and the Tony Award for her play, The Heidi Chronicles. Her other beautiful plays include Uncommon Women and Others. I'm seeing lots of nods, good. Isn't It Romantic? The musical Miami. Incidentally, she and I both share the memory of the Roni Plaza Hotel in Miami. American Daughter. And most recently, Old Money at Lincoln Center. Wendy has a children's book to her credit. She's written screenplays and teleplays of her own stage plays, and she wrote the film The Object of My Affection. She's the author of two collections of essays, Bachelor Girls, and most recently, the brilliantly titled Shiksa Goddess, or how I spent my 40s. 
Wendy's contribution to the American theater is absolutely undeniable. But there's yet another reason why Wendy is beloved by so many of us in the theater. What I would like to tell you tonight in introduction is something rather personal, and that is that the women in the profession owe a huge thank you to Wendy Wasserstein. You may not know, but um, I was remembering just recently sitting, I think it was about 25 years ago, actually that's exactly how many years ago it was, um, I was sitting um, with a group of women in one of the first women's project meetings in New York. The women's project was a new organization in the late 70s dedicated to producing work by women on the American stage. At that point in time, producing women's work was a radical idea. Women's work was rarely seen. Women rarely wrote, directed, or produced plays professionally. This is only a quarter of a century ago. But it was an illustrious group that day sitting there. The pretty much unproduced Marcia Norman. The pretty much unproduced Wendy Wasserstein. The pretty much unproduced Tina Howe, myself, Irene Fornes, director Joanne Acolytis, the director of the program, Julia Miles, and a number of designers as well. All of us were there to see if we could make a difference in the American theater. Would we be the ones who could kick down the closed doors of Broadway and the regional theaters? Could we have our plays produced? Could we direct these plays, design these plays? Could we, as women, run these theaters? Those were the burning questions. It was Wendy who kicked those doors down first in 1989 when her play The Heidi Chronicles went to Broadway, won the Pulitzer Prize and the Tony Award, and her name became synonymous internationally not only with women's playwriting, but with American playwriting. We all went on from there. We've gone to Broadway as writers and directors and designers. We are running the flagship theaters. And though it is still, sad to say, not quite yet a level playing field, we are getting there. Wendy, as much as anyone else, is responsible for breaking through so the rest of us could follow. It's especially moving for me to welcome Wendy here in Princeton, my theater home, to be able to thank her publicly for all she's done. Ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce the wondrous playwright and Jewish goddess, Wendy Wasserstein. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you. Emily Mann is a wonderful, wonderful speaker, artistic director, writer, everything. <laughs> she is wonderful. She, I remember Emily actually from 25 years ago in Chicago when she came to see my play Uncommon Women. And um, I didn't know her. I had no idea. I heard that there was this very smart young woman director. And it is true at that time there were so few of us that as soon as I heard there was a young woman director, I thought, that's interesting. I'd like to meet her. <laughs> and it was Emily. Uh, and we've been friends ever since. Um, thank you for inviting me here tonight. I love that I'm speaking to a room with little desks. I hope you take a lot of notes and I'll, <laughs> I'll have a quiz afterwards. Um, I just want to say, pardon my lip, I, um, I have a little bit of Bell's palsy, and I didn't want to cancel on Princeton. So um, a few... <laughs> Actually, I, um, I've taught here, I taught playwriting here, um, I guess three years ago, for Michael Cadden, who I went to Yale Drama School with and who I have an enormous crush on, who runs the theater department. Every time I come here, I announce my crush. But he does nothing about it. (laughs) But uh, Michael Cadden and I was to teach at Princeton uh, the following year, and I landed up uh, having a baby instead. And so I, I was in Mount Sinai Hospital with preeclampsia. I, nobody knew I was pregnant. And actually the first person I called to say I was pregnant was Michael Cadden from a hospital room to say, I can't teach at Princeton. You're not going to believe this. I'm having a baby instead. <laughs> so I couldn't do it to Michael Cadden two times in a row. Um, anyway, um, I I'm going to talk to you tonight about being a writer and being a Jewish woman writer and my feelings about that and how being a Jewish writer has very much influenced my work. I am often asked, frankly, do you think of yourself as a Jewish woman writer? That's when I say she's a goddess. I mean, I, you know, I don't know what else to answer. I am Jewish and I am a woman and I am a writer. Um, the influences in my life in terms of being a Jewish writer have somewhat deep roots. Um, my grandfather, Shimon Schleifer, was the head of a school district um, in Wotswavik, Poland. And he was also a playwright. And he left Poland uh, actually for political reasons. He was uh, also a socialist and also an organizer. And he was at a cafe with friends, and they told him that the police, whoever, was coming for him. And he left my mother and the children and his wife in the town of Wotswavik. They also had a home in a country home in a town called Chikachinik. They were sort of, my mother calls them, they were the intelligentsia and well-to-do. And he went to Gdansk and was a translator there and managed to, then he, I think he went to Antwerp and came to America where he was a translator and then worked in Pittsburgh at a Jewish school and also put on plays and eventually landed up being the head of a Jewish school in Patterson, New Jersey. But he continued to write plays and was actually friendly with Menashe Shkulnik and Malibu Khan. And my mother remembers going into New York, in fact, how she met her husband, her first husband, who was my father's brother. My parents are very 
steeped in that sort of European culture. My mother married brothers. Um, but her, the, um, the first husband, she had gone with my grandfather to the Orpheum Theater. They had gone to see Yiddish plays and had gone to Ratner's afterwards. And there was a young man di- uh, giving out leaf- leaflets for a Du Bois Club dance who was also a socialist, and my grandfather asked him to sit down because, and my mother was frightened to death of him, but in fact that was her husband George. So my roots are very much in the Yiddish theater culture. I've often, I, uh, my mother of course lost my grandfather's plays, but I ran into someone, oddly enough, when I was at Amherst College, a young man from Manitoba, from Canada, who was also from a Yiddish culture and a Yiddish background and a grandfather who knew about these plays, and he had actually heard of Shimon, uh, Shimon Schleifer. And um, there was a translator named Biala Mann, who um, some of her translations are in the archive at Columbia and stuff, and she was someone else who had heard of him. So that that part of my life is very much, and I think, my mother in particular, her devotion to the theater, her, you know, always when I was growing up, let's go see a show, very much came from that culture. Uh, my father, too, is uh, an immigrant, um, but in a different way. Actually, my father's grandfather lived in New Jersey and was a sort of, uh, not my father's grandfather, my father's father, in fact, and when he was in high school, got a trip to Europe, went to Poland and married a Polish girl. <laughs> he went the opposite way. And um, they uh, then lived in Bialystok and then landed up coming here to this country. Well, in fact, what happened was the father came first and went to Cuba, and then my father and his brothers came over. Their mother died on the boat, in, um, was buried in Liverpool. They came to New York and lived on the Lower East Side, and my dad went to Stuyvesant and became a, an engineer. Uh, but the stories that I find in my life, which I haven't written about, those family stories, uh, and I think about them more now, actually, given the recent events in New York. It makes me think about the city and what a wonderfully inclusive city it is and the story of people like Morris Wasserstein or Shimon Schleifer. Um, in a way, it is a heritage for, in this case, a Jewish writer, and it also informs the place you live in, because there are those stories of those people and the, their histories, their courage, and also, I think, in many ways, their humor. Uh, my mother, I think, is the funniest person I know, or at least the most colorful person I know. My father's probably the quietest person I know. <laughs> and it could be because of my mother. Um, I would say it is. Uh, William Finn, who wrote Falsettos, the wonderful musical, often told me that I was very lucky because I was born into so much material. <laughs> Neither here nor there. Um, I was raised in Brooklyn, in Flatbush, in a nice, uh, I'd say, upper-middle-class Jewish family. My father and his brothers, uh, who all were engineers, went on to invent a form of flocking process. They made adhesive to put wires into velvet ribbons. So at Christmas time, the bendable velvet ribbons, that's my time of year. That's... <laughs> But I also, that factory of my dad's, I've always thought that my father was in production and I was in production. 
and that when I would go to the theater to visit my plays, it reminded me very much of my dad at that, at that factory because in some ways, although plays are less tangible than velveteen, um, we both made something in this city. The other thing that was interesting about my father's velveteen was there was a period of time at Playwrights Horizons Theater in New York where they did wonderful new plays, including the Heidi Chronicles, but the Dining Room, Sunday in the Park with George, Chris Durang's new plays, um, falsettos, and people in the Times would write articles about an urban sense of humor and was it elitist and, you know, what was it ironic and, you know, new American playwriting. Well, in fact, I knew that what all these plays had in common was the flats at the back of the theater were all Wasserstein velveteen. That <laughs> all the black flats were like a, a 10 years at that theater for all those Pulitzer Prize winning plays. It didn't matter if it was Pete Gurney and the Wasp or me and the Jews. It was the black velveteen in the back. <laughs> so um, anyway, my dad had this uh, factory and I went to the Yeshiva Flatbush for the first uh, four years, I guess three years of my education. And my stage debut was as Queen Esther at the Yeshiva Flatbush. Um, we didn't really, well, the Yeshiva Flatbush was a very mixed bag for me anyway. Um, my mother insisted that I take dancing classes every Saturday at the June Taylor School of the Dance. Now, Rabbi Braverman, Joel Braverman, thought you were going to Temple every Saturday, and he certainly didn't think you were going off to the June Taylor School of the Dance. And I would tell my mother, well, I've got this problem when Rabbi Braverman comes around on Sundays and says, did you go to shul? Did you go to shul? And she said, well, just lie. And then I thought, well, you know, I really don't want to start lying to rabbis now. I know I've been second grade, but there's a problem here. Uh, <laughs> So then I would talk to my older brother and sister about this problem I was having with lying to rabbis, and uh, they pretty much said that I should learn to be more imaginative. So, and that, that was hard. And ultimately, I mean, this, this went on in some sort of macabre fashion uh, until we left the yeshiva of Flatbush and went to ethical culture school. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and uh, ethical culture school was more theatrically in some ways. Well, that, it was one of these progressive schools. It was in Brooklyn. So we used to go to Prospect Park, and there was a woman with a drum who used to um, call out colors. It was like Summerhill. She would go red, boom, 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 yellow, boom, 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 and we would dance to the colors. So actually, because of that time, I really can't add, I don't know what a hydra looks like, but I'm very creative. <laughs> and if, you know, I can dance to turquoise, I can do things like that. I just have no basic education skills, but that's all right. Uh, <laughs> I can play a triangle and it's often necessary. Uh, my family moved from uh, Brooklyn to Manhattan. Uh, and uh, friends of mine have said, actually Ed Cleavan, who wrote a chorus line, who that musical on Broadway was about last year, was a very close friend of mine and used to tell me that the thing about my education and background was that it sort of traveled from sort of a very middle-class traditional Jewish flatbush, yeshiva flatbush, to the Upper East Side. 
and that that really was, in a, in a young girl's life, a very large change. But it was a change that I could see very clearly because when I was applying to a lot of schools uh, when we moved into Manhattan, I thought there were certain reasons why I wasn't accepted into those schools. I had suspicions at the time and was young, but had some sort of suspicion. Um, and it seemed like a very different world to me, though interesting, but so very far away. Um, and not as funny, actually. Um, the world, uh, the Brooklyn world is much closer to, like in my play, The Sisters Rosenzweig, who a lot of those people are. It's a brighter color to me. It's a less sharp color and a brighter color. Uh, in many ways. Uh, the first place I ever wrote, I went to the Calhoun School, and every year there was something called the Mother-Daughter Fashion Show that took place at the Plaza Hotel. I don't know anything about fashion, but I knew they'd let me out of gym if I did it. So those were my very first plays. Um, I went to Mount Holyoke to college. Um, this was in... Um, back in 67, so Princeton was still a boys' school, man's school at the time. I remember getting a letter from Mortimer Hill Levitt inviting me here for the weekend to a Hillel dance, and I didn't go. I think my dad is still mad at me for that, uh, but it was very much that separate, you know, there were women and men and stuff. Um, and I was going to be a history major, and in fact, I was studying to become a congressional intern You know, I, I, I didn't, if I had only known, <laughs> I just didn't know. And I think, remember, there used to be that old thing about Smith is to bed and Holyoke is to wed, a little slow, uh, <laughs> still a little slow. So I was studying to become a congressional intern. I kept falling asleep on the Congressional Digest. And um, a friend of mine said to me, why are you doing this? We could take playwriting at Smith and then go shopping. And... <laughs> Though I don't um, care about fashion, I am very interested in shopping, and I could break it down for you like a one-act play, especially gift shopping, so that you think about character, and then you think about when you get it. Um, like a Harari for Emily Mann is a nice gift. But, <laughs> but And then if it doesn't fit, it can be comical or tragic or whatever. But you can build to a climax. Um, I, had, I was somebody who had one of the reasons why I've enjoyed teaching playwriting is because I'm someone who had the benefits of a wonderful college uh, playwriting teacher, a guy named Lynn Berkman, still teaches at Smith College. I found out years later that I was in his first class of students. Um, and uh, Len was someone who had gone to Brooklyn College. But what I thought at the time, and it's still true, I teach playwriting this year, actually I'm doing six classes at NYU, is that there used to be, there was a kind of person who always wore black, and they had long pre-Raphaelite hair, and the light was always flooding in from the left as they unpeeled an orange, and that... <laughs> These people, they wore little, lots of silver on their hands. They didn't have pierces then. Now they have pierces. It doesn't matter. They're very sensitive people. And I was always hardy. So I thought I couldn't be a writer because I was a hardy girl and not sensitive. And um, what Len Berkman taught me was what really mattered was finding your own voice. And if you could find it and tell those stories honestly, it would connect to the audience. 
And from that, my first play was a piece about my mother, again, because being born into all this material. My mother's name, well, it was Liska when she was in Poland, and she knew enough when she got off the boat, they said, would you like it to be Elizabeth or Lola? And she said, Lola. She knew, and she was right. Uh, my mother's name is Lola, and she's a dancer. Uh, she still, I mean, in many ways, I've come to respect this a great deal more in later life. Uh, she still takes dances. My mother's around 85, I think, dances at the Broadway Dance Center. And when I have auditions for plays, people come in and say, I dance with your mother. She's hilarious. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I'm somewhat demure. My mother wears black leather and a denim jacket that says Lola on the back. You can't miss her. Once, once you've been told about her, you'll see her one day on the street, and there she is. Um, but I started, I wrote about, that was my first play. And uh, my senior year, I did independent work in playwriting. Uh, and it was another draft of that play about Lola. I came to New York um, after college and took writing classes at City College. And again, being influenced as a Jewish writer, my two teachers were uh, Joseph Heller and Israel Horowitz. Um, who uh, they started a creative writing program at City College, and I thought Joe was a wonderful teacher, really wonderful. Um, he was someone who, you know, would spend a day revising a page. And I, I went to lunch with him. I was like 21, and he was 50. And I was, you know, so, you know, I was going to talk about Thomas Pynchon, or I don't know, just try to be as, you know, pretentious as I could get my hands on. And basically, Joe, Joe Heller told me, Wendy, writers talk about real estate. But... <laughs> But I do remember he said to me, Wendy, Wendy, don't you have a real name, Wendy? What's your middle name, Wendy? And I said, it's Joy. And he said, forget it, Wendy. <laughs> but now, on the other hand, Israel Harvitz told me that I had a beautiful name. And I told him only someone named Israel Harvitz could think <laughs> this was so pretty. Um, but... But interestingly, those were two New York writers, and I think when a young person sets out into the world to become a writer, it's a hard path to follow. There aren't, you know, there are luminaries who loom large, but it's very hard to decide how do you actually live your life, and it's different than whoever it is who goes to law school or whatever, and I think knowing both of them was um, extremely uh, inform, not just informative, I mean, really m changed my life very much so. I think especially Joseph Heller in, in many ways. Um, I went to Yale to drama school. I then um, applied to drama school. I applied to drama school and business school at the same time, uh, <laughs> given my family background. And I sort of figured out whoever takes me, that's what I'll do. Um, so, you know, I thought I could make velveteen in Chicago and have a happy life. I don't know. So seems okay to me. I've never really separated. I think what we often do is separate out who's in the arts and who's in business, and it's two different worlds, and I find that very much untrue. You know, and there are always those, you know, stories about who worked in insurance when it was also Wallace Stevens working in insurance and, you know, also being a poet. And then in some ways, I think, no, these worlds, we're not all in separate worlds and that artists don't live in separate little cubicles somewhere. And certainly some of the most analytical thinkers I know, um, Christopher Durang, Nicholas Heitner, 
Nick is uh, taking over the National Theater. Chris Durang's a great playwright. Uh, would have made wonderful lawyers. They're very clear, clear, clear thinkers. I'm not, but but they are. Um, but I, I was at Yale from 73 to 76. I was there the same time as Chris Durang and Meryl Streep and Sigourney Weaver. And to me, in terms of my own writing, we were reading a lot of Jacobean drama, and this sounds very rough, but Michael Cadden can talk to you about it afterwards. But to me, it was men were kissing the skulls of women and dropping dead from the poison. <laughs> and I thought, you know, this is not familiar to my experience. Uh, and maybe it was because I went to a girl's high school and a woman's college, but I wanted to write a play with an all-woman's curtain call in the basement of the Yale School of Drama. That seemed right to me because also I was very much affected by the women's movement. Um, I was in, I left Mount Holyoke and went to Amherst College in the first group of girls at Amherst. There were 23 women and 1,200 men. It was an experiment in co-education, and they sent us back. We failed. <laughs> and then they co-educated four years later. But during that time, um, I became very... I did think a lot. There's a line in the Heidi Chronicles where the Heidi says, uh, do you ever wonder what mothers tell their sons that they never bother to tell their daughters? And I thought about that a lot that year. I think things have changed since then, but certainly at that time. Uh, anyway, I wrote this play, Uncommon Women. It was my thesis at Yale. What's interesting about Uncommon Women in terms of talking about Jewish subjects is that not only is it all women, but the observer on a non-Jewish institution, it's about Mount Holyoke, is a Jewish girl named Holly Kaplan, who is the person who stands in for me. And though she's not the funniest person there, nor the most active, she's the eye on it. She's the person who's slightly removed from it. She might be the person who's most wry on it. And she has the monologue that, in some ways, the institution seems the most important to her and the most foreign to her. Um, and I think that's been true of, of a lot of my work, that there's often been a Jewish character in there who's, who's watching a world that's slightly distant from them. Um, anyway, when, um, when Uncommon Women was done at Yale, there was an afterplay discussion, and somebody raised their hand and said, I can't get into this, it's about girls. And I said, well, you know, I've spent my life getting into Lawrence of Arabia and Hamlet, so why don't you try it? <laughs> but I remember thinking that when the Heidi Chronicles won the Pulitzer and the Tony and, and watching the play in the back of the Broadway theater was thinking about how wonderful it is when you see a society change within your own lifetime, as Emily said, when you see walls break down. I don't think anyone would say that again, and no play would not be done because it was written by a woman or about women, and that's, that's great. I don't think there's been enough changes, but that is great. Um, the play I wrote after Uncommon Women is a play called Isn't It Romantic, which is a play about a wasp girl and a Jewish girl and their two mothers, and the Jewish mother calls her every morning to sing to her sunrise sunset and ask her when she's getting married. That's autobiographical material. <laughs> and, and there are scenes between um, 
the two mothers, uh, the wasp mother and the Jewish mother, and the Jewish mother starts talking about to the wasp mother, did you, this takes place obviously, uh, you know, a while ago in like 82 or something, and the Jewish mother is talking and she says, did you see Richard Nixon on Barbara Walters the other night? He did so well. And the wasp mother says, what? And the Jewish mother says, well, both his daughters married well. Thank you. <laughs> I'm afraid that's autobiographical material, too. So, but what's interesting about Isn't It Romantic, which is almost like an 80s version of Sex in the City. It's pretty much about two girls with a bit of a feminist ideology in it. Because the girl who says live alone, don't get married, have a career, is the person who gets married very quickly to someone within two weeks, whereas the other girl is someone who sort of lands up finding her way and is feels betrayed. But it is about two girls on the town coming of age and their sexual lives and, and their mothers. But what was interesting in that play ran for two years in New York and then was done all around the country. And someone, in fact, the late Herb Ross, wanted to buy it for it to be a movie. And we went to various movie studios, and they said to us, oh, we have a problem with this. It's too New York. And I thought, "Uh, yes, and that's a euphemism for what? Uh, People have mothers other places. People have best friends other places. I don't quite understand this, how this is too New York. And that was the first time I sort of came up against that. That, you know, and how seriously is it taken if it's to New York? And in fact, if you go back, what's interesting about looking at American Jewish plays in the 1980s is it's when they became Jewish. If you go back and look at Neil Simon's earlier plays, whether it's Barefoot in the Park, The Odd Couple, whatever, these people have no ethnicity, none. Uh, Neil Simon's first play with ethnicity in it where someone is said to be Jewish or anything, is Brighton Beach Memoirs. And the Watershed play, in many ways there, was was I'm Not Rappaport and Herb Gardner's work. Because, you see, you would have Jewish figures and things like um, Fiddler on the Roof, sort of folklorish stories, or plays on a Jewish topic, a political topic, but, but a milieu in which the character is happens to be Jewish, that was fairly, you didn't do that because it would limit your audience. This is how Blythe Danner landed up playing Neil Simon's mother in the film version of Brighton Beach Memoirs. Nobody's Jewish mother I know looks like Blythe Danner. You know, even the ones on the Upper East Side who've had a lot of work done, and I know these people, (laughs) but they don't. It's just, uh, you know, it's something else. And and that's interesting. And I think that's what happened. Isn't it romantic at that time? In some ways, though, a boulevard comedy was saying, this girl's name is Janie Blumberg. Her mother's name is Janie Blumberg, you know, Tasha Blumberg. This is a boulevard comedy. And it's not a sitcom. Then what, as things evolved, Seinfeld plays like that, you would have... Jewish characters in television sitcoms, oh, it's funny. But in terms of, you know, still if you look at American movies, the love interest, the pretty girl, whoever it is, the leading man, the active man, doesn't tend to happen to be Jewish. I think that's that's still pretty much true. Um, I came across this even more in the next play I wrote was a musical called Miami. 
in Miami, which was done at Playwrights Horizons, was about Miami Beach in 1959, when Emily and I frequented the Roney Plaza. And I uh, very much wanted to write a musical about family, about um, the end of an era in some ways, and the beginning of the Kennedy era, and that sort of nuclear American, um, and also antecedents of show business. Because if you went to nightclubs in Miami at that time, people like Bell Barth, all those comics, in some ways, like Bell Barth was very much an antecedent of Bette Midler. And a lot of people who produce movies now, produce television, their idea of what's funny, what show business, sort of came from that period. Anyway, Miami was a musical about my family going down to Miami. And... Um, in it, it featured a woman named Kitty Katz, who was pretty funny. But I remember a producer came to see it and afterwards took me out, and he said, Wendy, can't you make those people Irish? This isn't good for the Jews. And I thought, well, you know, I just didn't hang out with a lot of Irish in Miami at that point. It seemed very odd to me. And interestingly enough, I mean, this is just an anecdote, but... The end of Miami were the two kids on the diving board talking about the future, and there was a sky writing in the sky that said, Kennedy for president, leadership for the future. Um, and actually, Mrs. Onassis, who liked my work, came to that workshop at, at Playwrights Horizons upstairs to see it. And... Um, and we had to tell the kids who were like little Fisher Stevens and this other little girl all about Kennedy, and they didn't know. I mean, Fisher didn't know who Adley Stevenson was. It was just, you know. But she then wrote to me and told me how much she loved that musical. And it was very interesting because I thought she wasn't approaching it with the same, I don't know what, self-loathing or whatever it was. But it, it was very interesting to me. That And it's a musical that I sort of put aside. It had, I mean, I, I believe all plays have lives of their own. And this one, everything that could go wrong with it went wrong until one night Phyllis Newman played the mother in it and Phyllis got sick and I went on for Phyllis. Uh, and there I was singing and dancing and I thought there's really something wrong with this show. <laughs> and I got a letter from Act- Actors' Equity saying, if you're going to do this again, you need to join. And I thought, no, believe me, this will never happen again. Um, So that, you know, in terms of being a Jewish writer, it's funny, you do get cataloged in a way. Um, The Heidi Chronicles is about a nice non-Jewish girl from Chicago. The man she's in love with most of her life is a guy named Scoop Rosenbaum. But it's very much that it's not about a Jewish girl, and in fact, Scoop marries a Jewish girl from the South. But Heidi is not. when the television movie of that was on, and it starred Jamie Lee Curtis, and we went out to the American Academy of, um, of uh, Critics in Pasadena, where you get to go whenever you do uh, television, they, all, they meet four times a year, they all asked her, what was it like to play a Jewish girl? Why was she playing a Jewish girl? I mean, one... She wasn't playing a Jewish girl. And two, her father's Tony Curtis. So what were they talking about? <laughs> but that I, sort of interested me. Um, and also that the Heidi Chronicles does not have anything to do with Jewish themes. 
It happens to have a Jewish character in it, but yet it was classified as a Jewish play. Um, the Sisters Rosenzweig, on the other hand, which came out of my feelings about Miami, and uh, isn't it romantic about being too Jewish, is a play about Jewish identity. It's a play that I, I often get an idea for a new play when I'm writing a previous play. I wrote the Heidi Chronicles in London mostly. I had a grant for mid-career stimulation. <laughs> It was really great. I didn't even apply for it. It just came to me. And I thought, well, if you really think I need this, I don't know. It sounded lewd, so I went. Um, But it was, I became, while I lived in London, very interested in identity, in American identity, in female identity, and in Jewish identity. Um, and so I thought I would write this play, and also Chekhov was always my favorite writer, so you figure three sisters, that's a good idea for a play. I, I write this play, um, I start showing it to people. A, lot, a number of people said, well, you have to change the title, you can't call it the Sisters Rosenzweig. You should call it Sarah Fenny and Gorgeous, you know, it's too New York. It's too, you know, and I, and, and I thought about it, and then I thought, well, no, that is what this is. Let's just do this. And it was interesting. I thought it was my most serious play because it was dealing with those subjects, but it also was a very comedic play, and it also had the brilliant Madeline Kahn in it and Robert Klein, and those people are comic geniuses. So I'm, like, sitting there thinking I've written Chekhov. They come out, and it's, you know, pajama top. So, <laughs> but they were great. I mean, they, I, I used to stand in the back of the theater and just watch them. I mean, it was as if they were doing jazz with each other. But what's interesting about the sisters Rosenzweig and calling something what it is and saying you are a Jewish writer, you're not a Jewish writer, you don't want to be lumped in as Jewish, whatever it is. The Sisters Rosenzweig, I went to see at the Habima Theater in Israel. And I know enough Hebrew from my days at the Yeshiva Flatbush, even though I was at the June Taylor Dancing School. I, <laughs> I knew enough to watch the show. I knew it wasn't a very good production. Also, the, the comedy in Israel tends to be much punchier, and also the problem in Israel is not identity. They know they're Jews. That's not, you know, the sisters Rosenzweig is about a girl who changes her name from Rosenzweig to good and moves to England. I mean, she goes about as far as she can go. Anyway, so I'm I'm in Israel with Andre Bishop, who runs Lincoln Center Theater, and then we go to the airport, and like in a Woody Allen Zelig moment, we got stuck at the airport because Rabin and Perez, it's very sad to me now, we're coming back from America from that first peace handshake. So we just stood at that airport for six hours and we watched them go by finally when we figured out why we were at that airport. And then I flew to London because the play was being done in London. And around during our rehearsal time, there was a bomb that went off at the Israeli embassy in London. Um, and then the play, we were in previews, and the Israeli ambassador was coming to our play, and my play had Maureen Lipman, who does a lot of Neil Simon's plays in Israel, and uh, who's a Jewish actress, and Janet Sussman, who's a South African Jewish actress from the RSC, and, and me. And uh, it was uh, a preview, and around 10 minutes before we were supposed to go up, we got a call that there was a bomb in the theater. 
So we emptied out the theater where there was a bomb scare, and then they emptied out, it was like a 500-seat theater, they emptied out all the pubs around us, and Maureen said, let's go do the play in the park. So by then we had 800, 900 people follow us into the park behind the Greenwich Theater, into the Maritime Park, and we went up on the hill, and the stage manager said, this is Sarah Good's house, here's the living room, here's the entryway, enter Sarah. And we did the play, and the light, it was light till 10 at night. And to me, it was the most moving theatrical experience I had had. But I also thought, you know, my little comedy about Dr. Gorgeous, who returns a Chanel suit so she can afford to pay for her daughter's tuition, if something had happened that night, would have been an international incident with an Israeli ambassador, you know, an, an American playwright, those British actresses. So suddenly, who you are, the ripples come in closer, you know, and it's not just a matter of, oh, I'll call my play Sarah Fenny and Gorgeous and dodge it a little bit. Um, and that really brought it home to me uh, in terms of my own work and in terms of who one is identified as on, in a larger issues. Um, my plays have been not all specifically on Jewish topics. It's You do get lumped. I mean, my work is often com, uh, compared to Neil Simon's. I don't think Mr. Simon is obsessed with the woman's liberation movement that influenced his life in the 70s. Uh, I do think he's a very good comedic craftsman, wonderful comedic craftsman, in fact, and someone who obviously has had a long life in the theater. Um, And also someone who, there is a school of writing, of comic writing, uh, which has been practiced by a lot of Jewish writers like Larry Gelbart, who's a great Jewish writer, who know the skills of comedy. I mean, these are people who can tell you that K-words always get a laugh or how you can turn a sentence up at the end as opposed to down, which is a great tradition. And I feel that in my generation it's passing. And certainly in the following generation it will pass even more. But you do, there is a linkage in some ways. Um, And I think in terms of Jewish characters, as I said, on television you do get, oh, you know, the funny, smart aleck New York person. But then it's put into a category of, oh, that person's funny, or oh, that person is smart. It's hard to find the whole person who is also Jewish. I I still find that uh, someone who you, you don't find all that often. One of my favorite characters who I wrote was in the play I wrote called uh, An American Daughter. Uh, and it's the character called Judith D. Kaufman, who is an African-American Jewish oncologist. <laughs> and um, Lynn Thigpen played her on Broadway, and she won a Tony Award for her. It's a, it was a wonderful performance. Um, and I think it was... I think because she was, actually she was the fullest character in that play and what she was able to, to bring from, to that play, uh, from her heritages. Um, anyway, I'll tell you a little bit about Shiksa Goddess and why I've written a book called Shiksa Goddess and how that came to be. Um, and again, um, all, all the time that I've been writing plays, I've also been writing essays. And I write them because 
because plays take me nine months to write and another year to get on, and then it's just an endless thing. And essays in some ways have a beginning, middle, and end. Uh, and also, in some ways, when you're able to train your eye as an observer. Uh, during the course of my essay writing, I've written everything from Martha Entman, the coffee cake lady's obituary. Um, the New York Times called me up and asked me if I'd like to write that, and I thought, I know you're not calling Edward Albee for this. Uh, <laughs> and you'll be glad to know that Martha Entman, the secret to her success was she invented the see-through top for dessert, that prior to Martha, all cakes came were in white packages tied up with strings. And Martha, a smart girl, she thought if you could see the cake like a convertible, it would jump off the box shelf to you. So, yeah, I wrote about Martha. Um, so it, it really ranged from, from that to writing more substantial work, like my sister and I went to Poland together, my elder sister Sandra, who uh, was head of the um, card division at American Express and then was one of the top 20 uh, financial advisors at Citicorp, and uh, she brought the New York Philharmonic to Poland, and we went to my mother's old house and to Wasławek and stuff, and I, I wrote about that. And then ultimately, um, my writing became slightly, if you want to call it more serious, what I find about Jewish writing is that what one has access to from the tradition is a texture that same thing of not dividing what's comedic and what's serious because it's both at the same time. I mean, I think that's why my favorite writer is Chekhov, but I think it's very much in the history of Jewish writing. I mean, when you go back and you look at Babel and Isaac Bashiva Singer, even in the, you know, there's something about the fancifulness in the face of terror there. But uh, what happened to me was my sister Sandra got ill during my 40s. Uh, she had a recurrence of breast cancer, and I was the person who took care of her during this time. And at the same time, I was trying to have a child. So we were coming up against things, issues about women that, not, that we had not come up. They certainly didn't teach it at Women's History at Mount Holyoke. Um, my sister passed away uh, three years ago, and... Um, after she passed away, I had decided to stop my search for fertility and to adopt a child. And I ran into my fertility doctor at the Des Artistes, and he said, Wendy, you should try one more time. And I looked at him, and I said, just go away from me, really. I can't do this anymore. And he said, just try one more time. I promise you I wouldn't say this to you unless I thought it could happen. So I did. And uh, I found out I was pregnant on Easter, the Festival of Eggs. And... Um, <laughs> I always, growing up as a Jewish girl, wanted to roll eggs because I didn't understand what the hell they were doing. So I was very happy that the, that the festival of eggs meant now something to me. And um, I didn't tell anyone I was pregnant because I thought I'm really high risk and old and I thought something was going to, you know, I didn't know, poo, 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 something's going to happen. And uh, then I um, actually spoke at Andre Bishop's mother's uh, Service, a funeral service on August 27th. My baby was due December 14th. I was going to tell people in September, Q 
commute to Princeton once a week and teach and, you know, have a lovely fall. And uh, I went to my doctor, and she said, your blood pressure is like 100 million over 1,000. Get in a taxi, go to Mount Sinai, you have preeclampsia. So I was at Mount Sinai for four weeks on my side, calling Michael Cadden. Um, I did talk to a lot of students who had gone to Princeton. The residents would come at 2 in the morning to take fetal heartbeats, and then they'd sit down and start talking to me about the Heidi Chronicles. It was sort of, they were great. Um, but I think, really, how I got through that time was from my experience of being um, a comic essayist, because I became very interested in it. I mean, I knew it was serious, and I knew it was about me. But I also thought, as a writer, this is interesting. Uh, And I remember there was one night where this man who was head of, when you have preeclampsia, very high blood pressure, this man who was head of uh, blood hypertension at Mount Sinai, Dr. Bob Phillips, came into my room and said, I'm very sorry, I'm not going to be here tomorrow. I'm going to Houston. There's going to be the first manned station on Mars, and I want to go and be the hypertension doctor. I thought this man was out of his mind. Either that or I thought this was the last conversation I was going to have and I was going crazy. And so I said to him, please sit down. I'm very interested in space travel. Um, and he said, you are. And I said, oh, yes, I'm very interested because I thought, Wendy, just keep talking now. Uh, so he said, well, would you like to see my proposal? And I said, yes, I very much. So he gives me this thing, and it's about the thermodynamic of the da, 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 I don't know. I look at this thing, and I said, listen, you got to punch this up. We, <laughs> we have a problem. You've got the old Passover problem here. Why is your proposal different than anyone else's? <laughs> But I can help you with this. So there I was on a magnesium drip and God knows what else going into me. And I wrote jokes for Bob Phillips to go to Houston. The next day, Bob Phillips went to Houston, called me that night. He got the job. (laughs) So, um, but I think it was more than, you know, I was just writing jokes. I actually thought, well, this is interesting. I'm interested in this man who wants to go to Mars on some level. It's as interesting as Martha Antimon and her cakes. Um, And it sort of got me through that time, and and my daughter was in a neonatal intensive care unit for 10 weeks. And again, I think going there every day beyond the, I mean, terror, um, well, it was also the most humane experience I have ever had. Uh, and the best of New York, I thought, the, in terms of care and who was there. But it was also from the experience of working in the theater, showing up every day, believing in a co- collaboration, and having a faith that you think things will work out, or at least you will work at it with the other people to the best of your ability. And I was also very interested in who was there and what was happening. And by the, when my daughter came home at four pounds, I then wrote it up for the New Yorker, wrote an article about it. And after I wrote that, I decided that I would write about my sister's illness. But both of these pieces, which are in this book, Shiksa Goddess, in many ways, which are the most serious times in my life, I mean, pretty much life and death, I would say were written by a Jewish writer or someone who at least came of age with those influences from the grandfather in Poland through growing up in Brooklyn with the colorful people through just life, you know, and the history and that the, and the disappointments and the hopefulness and the humor in the worst possible times. It all seems of a piece to me. 
even if, you know, this book, those essays were written by Madame X, I would say they were written by a Jewish writer. I would know that. Um, and finally, the, the, um, the title essay, Shiksa Goddess, How I Became One, um, is that, uh, my favorite, um, headline on the New York Post a few years, no, actually it was last year, said, Oy vey, Hillary's Jewish. And it was because her fourth cousin, five times removed, was married for a week to a Jewish woman. <laughs> so I actually thought, if Hillary's Jewish, I'm Episcopalian. <laughs> so I think what I'll do is, let me just see what time it is here. Is it 930? Um, if I can see, I could read to you a little from this essay. Uh, or we could just take questions, actually. Why don't we just take questions? <laughs> um, should we do, read? You want me to read? Okay, I'll read. It might be a little hard. It's a little glary, but we'll see. And then I'll take questions. And I can tell you all about whatever you want to know. Okay. I cannot tell a lie. I feel compelled to bite the bullet and publicly reveal that I've just discovered my own denominational truth. I am Episcopalian. <laughs> I should have guessed it a long time ago because my parents never mentioned it. <laughs> In fact, they hid it. They sent me to primary school at the Yeshiva Flatbush. It never crossed my mind that I was deliberately being isolated. On our classroom walls were portraits of Chaim Weitzman and Golda Meir in place of Dwight and Mamie Eisenhower. <laughs> our horror stories were not of being buried by communists, but of being suffocated by nomad ham sandwiches. We lived in a Jewish neighborhood in Flatbush. Our shopping strip included kosher butchers and Jaime's Highway appetizers. For Sunday brunch, my mother produced bagels, belly locks, and cream cheese with scallions. Nobody told me that locks lived a double life as smoked salmon. <laughs> or that herring could ever be kippered. Even the Christmas holidays were a setup. Every year on Christmas Eve, we were on a jet to Miami Beach. There wasn't even a chance for us to watch the WPIX Channel 11 Yule Log burning as the Mormon Tabernacle Choir sang Silent Night. Oh, this. Uh, we celebrated the holidays front row center at the Versailles Room with Myron Cohen warming up our crowd for Sammy Davis Jr. Even our African Americans were Jewish. Until now, I've had a happy life thinking of myself as a Jewish writer. I came to accept that when my work was described as being too New York, it was really a euphemism for something else. I belonged to a temple, and on my opening nights, my mother invariably told friends that she'd be much happier if it was my wedding. <laughs> In other words... I had a solid sense of self. I knew exactly who I was. Then the bottom fell out. 
I was speaking at the Lion of Judah luncheon in Palm Beach recently when I noticed a woman in a Lily Pulitzer dress, one strand of pearls, and 40-year-old pink Papagallo shoes leaning against the door. She stood out from the crowd because, instead of the omnipresent Barry Kesseltine cord purse with lizard clasp, she was carrying a battered lacrosse stick. <laughs> At the conclusion of my talk, she approached the podium. I hope you don't mind my speaking to you, but I believe we are related, she said. I looked at her dead straight blonde hair and smiled politely. I doubt it. <laughs> Your name translates to Waterston, she continued. <clears throat> Harry Waterston, your great uncle twice removed, was my mother's fourth husband. They were married for one month. She looked at me as only a simpleton wouldn't make the immediate connection. I did have a distant relative, Dr. Harry Wasserstein, but I never heard of him marrying anyone but Aunt Rivka. According to my mother, even though Harry was an educated man, he never worked a day in his life, and Rivka's life was miserable. I think you must be mistaken, I said, and tried to excuse myself. After he left my mother, Harry Waterston changed his name to Wasserstein because he wanted his son to go to an Ivy League college. <laughs> and to Mount Sinai Medical School. Harry Jr. became an educated man, but he never worked a day in his life. I was schwitzing, I mean sweating. Our name actually translates to Waterstone, I said. That's irrelevant, she was almost haughty. Look at that actor on Law and Order. What's his name, San? He's a hasid if I ever saw one. She handed me the lacrosse stick while I made a mental note to find out what Sam Waterston was doing for the High Holy Days. <laughs> this was Harry's lacrosse stick, which he used the year he was expelled from Hotchkiss, she said. He made me promise to give it to the first Wasserstein relative I met in Palm Beach. He said it was inevitable that one of you people would show up here. She winked and left the room. Good or bad news has always made me hungry, but for the first time in my life, I needed a drink. <laughs> Maybe she was on to something. That week, I began eating chicken sandwiches with mayo on white bread. <laughs> no crust and getting full after two bites. For the first time in my life, I wrote to the Mount Holyoke Quarterly, <clears throat> I'm looking to buy 30-year-old Saab car and to apologize to all the Holyoke girls named Timothy and Kiki, whom I never spoke to. I now know you were very interesting people. <clears throat> I began wearing faded cardigan sweaters and canceled all appointments for massages, pedicures, and exploratory liposuction. I gave up on my complicated relationship with a married, uh, with a married Jewish Malaysian vibes player. 
and learn to enjoy the company of a divorced asexual friend from Amherst who was studying pharmaceutical stocks for J.P. Morgan. I began running 10 miles every morning and sculling down the Hudson nightly. My approval ratings with my friends have gone up 15 points. But I was still, as I used to say in Yiddish, knit a hen, knit a hair. Or as I now say in the Queen's English, neither here nor there. <clears throat> that was when I decided to go on a listening tour of Fisher's Island. I wanted to really hear the stories of my new wasp ancestors, learn to make their cocktails, and wear the headbands. I wanted to live up to the true destiny and announce to the world how great it was to be Goyesha like me. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Do you have any questions? I'll tell you a great Lola story that I forgot to tell you, which is in terms of Jewish identity and growing up and mothers and stuff. We used to go to Miami every year, and at Miami there was a hotel called the Kenilworth that was owned by Arthur Godfrey, which was, quote, for people from your own background and taste. And every year my mother used to take me and my brother Bruce to the Kenilworth Hotel to go up to the receptionist and ask for directions to the Cohen Bar Mitzvah. <laughs> and Bruce and I would go, please, no. <laughs> and she would take up there, and then the receptionist would say, Madam, there is no Cohen Bar Mitzvah here. And then years later, I lived in the same apartment building as Arthur Godfrey, and on the day he died, there was an ambulance there, and I thought, he's going to the Cohen Bar Mitzvah in the sky. But, yes, yeah, so I think, you know, that's a Jewish childhood. <laughs> was there a question in the back? Yes. Yes. I ask myself that still every morning. <laughs> it terrifies me. Uh, I didn't, I was always funny, and I always got by by being funny and being the youngest in a large family of oversized personalities. Um, and my mother would say, you know, make Bruce feel better, be funny. I mean, so there, there was a lot of that going on. I didn't really think, like I said, I didn't think I could become a writer. I think I was very lucky, though, coming of age when I did, because actually people with very similar skills to mine now graduate from schools like this and go to Hollywood right away and become television writers and actually make a great deal more money than I do, but they write in groups. They write com comedies, you know, five kids around a table writing Seinfeld or Frasier, and they do great work or writing Friends, but they don't develop their own voices. So they, do they don't write alone. Uh, so they, so that the world of actually someone, well, it's also the change of Broadway, but someone like Neil Simon, Larry Gelbart, and those people wrote for your show of shows, but they also developed their own style 
and their own voice. And that's very different. I mean, when Larry Gelbart wrote MASH, he wrote it himself all those years. Uh, so for me, uh, you know, I always thought, well, it's hard also when you write comedy to take yourself seriously as a writer. You're always, you know, writing that thing of, oh, I'll write a serious play or, oh, I want to be taken seriously. It's, it's a hard thing. But I do think I look at the world as a writer. I do, you know, if I told you what I did today, it would be in anecdotes or it's, it's just my innate instinct. You know, I was thinking I should do something for my building in New York just because of community spirit. And I thought, well, I can't bake cookies or anything, but I'll just put on a pageant in the playroom. It's just innate, I think. Yeah. Mm hmm I think, I mean, my place, I guess because I was a history major, I'm interested in how the times you live in affect your personal choices. And And that's almost more of a British concept in terms of playwriting, that it's not, you know, psychological, this is all because of my mother. It also is my mother, but I came of age during the women's movement, da, 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 da. I mean, I'm a single mother at the moment, and, um, and I think a lot of that, you know, the choices that I've made and how it came to be had to do just, you know, how my life played out at a certain time. Um, I don't know about that concept of having it all. I find even having a little exhausting. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I think we're all different, and you know, some people you can do what you can do. I, I, I also find, as I get older, the whole idea of entitlement a really difficult thing to deal with. The idea that you are entitled to have it all when someone else isn't. I I find that harder. To, to deal with uh, as I get older, and maybe if I wrote, I would write about that. Yeah, Michael. <laughs> well, I couldn't teach here. <laughs> um, it's made me a little bit more disciplined because I got to get things done to get home, and I I do think about her, you know, and think eventually about, you know, writing about babies and nannies. And I um, <laughs> I was going to keep a journal this year. I was going to write a book called Two about Lucy Jane and I this year. And I she was turning two on September 12th. And I began it on her first day of school, September 10th. And, you know, and at that point I thought, this is really, this is too rich. I can't do this. Uh, maybe in retrospect I can, but I also think that, you know, a, a child coming of age in, in this world, you think about that. But mostly it makes me go to sleep earlier. I don't write late <laughs> anymore. Anyone else? Yes? There is a lot of concern about Jewish assimilation. And I also, I think about, you know, my mother was born in 1917, you know, so that the world that she knows is really 
of the previous century. Um, and the world that I know because of them is of a previous century. I think there's also, I mean, I find in my nieces and nephews who are much younger a great deal of interest in Jews. They are far more religious Jews than my brother or I are, maybe because they didn't go to the yeshiva Flatbush, you know. It could well be that. Um, so, I, I, yes, I think there will be. I think there is assimilation, but I also think there, there is a tradition that gets passed down, and also it's been pretty much passed down for a very long time, and I think will continue to be. It can be passed down in different ways. You know, I don't know that Shimon Schleifer would have thought, oh, you know, my tradition will be passed down in a granddaughter who's a single mother somewhere. It changes. It has its permutations. But I think it does, yes. Oh, there's that hand in the back. Um, you know, it's funny because I think as the years go by, I am very much cataloged as a, as a Jewish writer. I think that what interests me about writing, what I was talking to you before about that texture, about what's sad and what's funny, and if you can hit those notes at the same time, almost musically, that interests me more. And if that's Jewish, then it becomes more Jewish in tone if not in subject matter. But I think it does also, as I get older, I really want to write about my parents, and I haven't been able to do it. And that is specifically Jewish subject matter. But I, I would love to write about them. Um, sure. I mean, not as I said, not all my plays are on Jewish subject matters. I mean, the, the Heidi Chronicles is a history of the women's movement and uh, the coming of age of that boomer generation. So that really isn't that subject. And my last play, Old Money, is actually about old money in New York. Uh, it's a parallel story about a WASP family and a Jewish family. So it, it, it has... Okay, well, I think that's it. Thank you very much. Thank you.